0: good Good evening everyone i'm broadcasting live uh, august 28th 2015 today we have a quote we've got a whole bunch of meditators mostly green a few yellow orange We got a long passage. So, does anyone want to jump in here and jump in here and help Robin out? Otherwise, I will. How many passages are there? One, two, three, four, five. Right one two three four seven eight nine ten eleven eleven eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven, no. All right, Robin, you do the first six. One, two, or the first five. One, two, four, five. You do down to I'll start test I'll start with the one the question about testing meaning. So you do the first half. I'll do the second
1: okay. Bharadwaja asked the Lord, What good Gotama is of great help in the attainment of truth? We are asking about the thing that is of great help in attaining of truth. Striving, Bharadwaja, is of great help in the attainment of truth. For if one does not strive, one would not attain truth. But if one does strive, one will attain truth. But what is of great help to striving? Weighing things up is of great help in the attainment of striving. For if one does not weigh things up, one would not strive. But if one does weigh things up, one will strive. But what is of great help in weighing things up? Making an effort is of great help in weighing things up. For if one does not make an effort, one would not weigh things up. But if one does make an effort, one will weigh things up but what is of great help in making an effort? Desire is of great help in making an effort. For if one had no desire, one would not make an effort, but if one desires, one will make an effort. But what is of great help in generating desire? Approving of things is of great help in generating desire, for if one does not approve of something, one would not generate desire, but when one approves of something, one generates desire but what is of great help in approving of things.
0: Testing the meaning is of great help in approving of things, for if one does not test the meaning, one will not approve of things, but if one does test the meaning of the meaning, one will approve of things. But what is great help in testing the meaning? Remembering the Dhamma is of great help in testing the meaning, for if one does not remember the Dhamma, one could not test its meaning. But if one does remember the dhamma one can test it. But what is of great help in remembering the dhamma? Hearing the dhamma is of great help in remembering the dhamma. For if one did not hear the dhamma one could not remember it. But if one does hear it here one can remember it. But what is of great help in hearing the dhamma? Lending an ear is of great help in hearing the dhamma. For if one did not lend an ear one would not hear the dhamma. But if one does lend an ear one will hear the Dhamma. But what is of great help in lending an ear Drawing close is of great help in lending an ear For if one did not draw close One could not lend an ear But if one did draw close one can lend an ear But what is of great help in drawing close Visiting is of great help in drawing close For if one did not visit one could not draw close but if one does visit, one will be able to draw close. Then what is of great help in visiting? Faith is of great help in visiting. For if one did not have faith, one would not visit. But if one has, has faith, one will visit. Say, quote from the Majjhima Nikaya. Supta number 95. the junkie sutta. People have mentioned this one to me when they try to claim that faith is what you need. Faith is the basic. Faith is most important. But, I mean, what does that say? I mean, faith is just, just important because you need enough faith to go and visit someone. has nothing to do directly in this sutta with meditation. It's not directly helpful. It's just, if you don't believe someone's useful someone's helpful if you don't believe in someone you won't go visit them there's some problems with this translation remember how i've said before that desire it's not we don't really desire to meditate wanting to meditate there's always this question now you're talking about giving up desire but you want to meditate right how can you progress and meditate without wanting So here, again, we have this word desire. This is a neat uh, sutta for another reason, because it talks about uh, preserving the truth. Satchanurakana. there's a difference between um, coming to the truth and preserving it if I say I believe X or I believe in the Buddha's enlightenment then as long as it's true that I believe in the Buddha's enlightenment I'm, pre- I'm preserving the truth but it doesn't mean that the Buddha's enlightened I haven't come to the truth I believe that meditation is the path to enlightenment. Okay, as long as I believe that, that's a true statement. So I'm guarding the truth. But it doesn't mean that meditation is the path to enlightenment. So this sutta actually talks about that. It says, if a person has faith, he preserves the truth when he says, my faith, is, faith is thus. But he does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. This is applicable in, in modern day, you know, when we people say, I believe, and, but, but we tend to con- confuse the two. We say, I believe that um, God created Earth 6,000 years ago, and somehow that has meaning. There's this idea that that somehow has meaning, and therefore it has to be uh, respected. It doesn't really have to be respected. I mean, modern scientists don't really respect that that belief because there's no basis in the truth. They've preserved the truth insofar as they've claimed that it's a belief, but that has nothing to do with whether the statement is true or not. I believe God is watching over me and protects me, etc., etc. And somehow that belief is to be respected. I believe that vaccines cause autism. I mean, this kind of thing. I don't know, maybe vaccines do cause autism, but a belief doesn't make it so. But that's not our quote. Our quote is about a link, a chain. And the Buddha is good at chains as well. He's good at saying what leads to what, right? But is of course the best example. But before all of this, he's he's given a, a different kind of chain. He's given the chain of practice. And it has to do with someone going to see someone, going to see a bhikkhu and the venerable gives him practice and teaching and then he goes and investigates his mind once he investigates them oh no he investigates the, the monk right then he places faith once, and this is interesting because it talks about faith remember the, the last link in the chain is faith so then if we asked what, what leads to faith the Sutta actually talks about that as well. So he's, yeah, he questions, he sees this, this bhikkhu who he might go and listen to, and he says, Is this guy worth going to see? And so the householder goes and investigates. Is this guy uh, obsessed with greed, obsessed with anger, obsessed with delusion, such that not knowing he might say, I know. Or while not seeing he might say i see or he might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and suffering for a long time and so he investigates and once he investigates then he gains faith once he gains faith then he respects once he respects then uh, he listens once he listens then he examines once he examines then he gains reflective acceptance of those teachings and then zeal springs up. Once zeal springs up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives. Resolutely striving, he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. So it, it actually... it, it um, Pre... I don't know, what do you call it? it comes before the list and it, it actually says exactly what's in the list, but it says it in the other direction. So the list that we've got is the other way. So this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's words. They're a bit better, I think. Zeal instead of desire. But chanda, the word is chanda there. And chanda doesn't really mean Zeal, Chanda. If you look in terms of the four uh, itipada, if you want to succeed in something, you have to, in a sense, want to do it, right? But you don't need exactly to want to do it. I mean, it's just a matter of manner of speaking. You need the contentment or the intention to do it. This is what Chanda is—the inclination to do to do something. You have to be inclined in that direction. This doesn't require desire. Not in a not in terms of greed. No, it doesn't require any sort of greed. People do do things out of greed. They do even meditate out of greed. I want a happy state. Thinking that they meditate. I want to be awesome. They're thinking that they meditate. I want to be an arahant. I want to become a sotapanna. Be out of desire for becoming. They meditate, but it's not required. Out of wisdom, one can cultivate a inclination to meditate without desire. Chanda—it's not tanha uh, or upadan or loba or anything. Chanda can be positive or it can be negative. The other one is this weighing things up. Um Bodhi gives, I think, a more—I mean, it's not wrong; it's just a weird translation. The word is scrutiny. Tulana, hmm? is that what it, what is it? Chunky. Tulana tulanaya. It it has to do with weighing. I mean technically that's what it means, but scrutinizing weighing is you know, it's a good metaphor, but Discerning, discriminating, discriminating maybe makes more sense because what happens when you put out effort is you start to discriminate. You start to be able to. It's like if you uh, heat something up, it starts to become more viscous and it can, you, it can be, it can be, can shift. It becomes plastic. Right. So the mind is like this. Our mind is set in its ways, set in its views and its beliefs. Once we put out effort, then we're able to um, change. We're able to break things up. We're, we, have the, we have the power of mind to actually change our habits. But it's an interesting uh, set of dhammas here. It, uh, it's, it's kind of practical, you know. It's not dealing with specific mind states. It's giving a, a, a conventional, this is a conventional teaching. On what is useful, so none of this should be taken as ultimate truth. This is conventional truth. That and it may it's sensible. Faith is of great help in visiting. If you don't believe in someone, you don't visit. It doesn't always have to be that way. Sometimes you visit wanting to criticize, or you visit just for fun, the fun of it because you're bored, or you visit because other people pull you along. So it's not always. This is an ultimate truth. Buddha said, if you don't have faith, you won't visit. So therefore faith is absolutely necessary it's not true faith is necessary for other reasons but it's necessary in terms of that moment when you actually apply your mind you have to suddenly say oh this makes sense and do it right otherwise but that can be just a moment sometimes you just happen to meet with someone and they get, and you ask them a question not believing what they're they're going to say but then you hear what they say and suddenly oh and you just get it maybe and then you take it home and you can meditate on it and maybe you become enlightened without having this kind of faith that leads you to visit people this is a conventional teaching that makes perfect sense no? anyway i think i'll leave it to the buddha to have answered these questions quite well you see the buddha had to answer lots of questions as well so we're only doing what is the What is in line with our tradition? People are still hitting the character limit. I think that's kind of good. It means you have to keep it short and sweet. Sorry it's so long. (laughs) It's okay. We're all friends here. Are
1: you ready for questions, Bhante? Go for it. I'd like to, I'd just like to see if I can get some advice for my sitting meditation practice. It seems like no matter how hard I concentrate or perfect my posture, I always start dozing somewhere between the 15- and 20-minute mark. I also start to get visions under my eyelids. I usually just observe them playing themselves out as my new meditation subject, but that makes me even drowsier.
0: Well, drowsiness, there's different ways you can deal with it. But one i answer this question a lot um one of the factors is daily life meditating during daily in in, interspersed with work and and life is problematic for this reason that your our, our daily life tends to tire us out and so when you stop moving when you stop being active your body shuts down it takes it as an opportunity to to rest and thinks you thinks you want to sleep you say okay let's sleep then so um when people come to do a meditation course this is a common first couple of days and it's a common experience for the first couple of days where you have a hard time meditating you're falling asleep and so on but there's a balance that comes there's a cleansing that comes and eventually you, you get into the groove and it goes away in daily life you don't necessarily have that it's a It's a a good indicator or it's a reminder to us that we have to be very careful during our days not to allow ourselves to get too tired, but it's not something you can completely avoid. That being said, there are ways, as I said, to deal with it if you're moderately mindful throughout the day. once you come to meditate it's possible to overcome the drowsiness one way is to get up and do walking meditation another way is to do some chanting uh, to think about the suttas sometimes turning on a light helps going outside getting fresh air sometimes rubbing your rubbing your limbs helps pulling your ears apparently helps I, not, I may have made that one up I'm not sure uh, washing your face helps. The Buddha gave a list of things that helped in the. Uh, I know I can't remember which it was. Pachala, Chapala, I can't remember what the name of the sutta was. But to Mogalana.
1: Does having magical power mean that you have enlightened or are on the path of enlightenment? You are enlightened.
0: I mean it's a good sign that you've got you've got a strong mind which can be very useful in meditation in enlightenment in the path to enlightenment. It's not a sign that you are enlightened. I mean it's 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 a sign It's more likely that someone who has magical powers is enlightened, I think, than someone who does not have magical powers, all other things being equal. So there is that. If someone has magic powers, there's a better chance. I mean, not 100%, but let's say, uh, you can't quantify it, but it's because of the, the difficulty in obtaining magical powers, there's a better chance than if they don't have magical powers. But that being said, people can become enlightened without magical powers. It's just that both require mental training, and therefore it's clear that a person who has magical powers has done some mental training. That's about it.
1: How can someone cultivate faith towards oneself and others?
0: Well, towards others, the sutta, if you read the sutta, that uh, sutta number 95, Buddha talks about this, you investigate, investigate the person and uh, listen to what they say, watch how they behave. In fact, it's difficult. You have to spend time with someone. You have to watch them closely and you have to be discerning. But I, I'd say faith is a bit of a red herring. It doesn't require faith even in the Buddha, not so much. It requires faith to the extent that you you listen to what the person says and it makes sense and you think, "Wow, that's something worth trying. You don't focus too much on the messenger. Uh, faith in yourself, which is a good question. It's a good point that faith is not always about someone else. You need faith in yourself. Um, yeah, it's a good question. The reflection helps, I think. Um, having a good teacher, a good teacher who can encourage you and say, you're not doing, you're doing fine, you're doing great, you're doing very, you know, uh, can give you faith and encouragement. Sometimes you have to um, encourage yourself. Uh, reading the Dhamma can encourage you because you see how approachable it is, how and you think, I can do that. Oh, this is something I can do. The Dhamma is, is this kind of good teacher that the Buddha was that gave encouragement to people. Make them realize that they could do it for themselves. They didn't have to rely on God or priests or so on.
1: What should I do when people keep asking me to go to church?
0: Hmm. Go to church. I love going to church. Go and then ask the Ask the, the guy at the front or the person at the front lots of questions. During your 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 sermon, you said that God is love. So why does He send people to hell? <laughs> Isn't it true that Satan has never sent anyone to hell, and yet God has sent countless? <laughs>
1: I'm thinking it must be a little strange to see a a monk walk into mass.
0: Yeah, they give me the evil eye sometimes. (laughs) I've gotten the evil eye sometimes. Sometimes, I mean, obviously this church that I went to, the evangelicals are, you know, just happy to see people. Or they pretend to be anyway, I don't know. Don't don't worry, go to church, go to church or not, but don't let it be because I'm Buddhist. I can't go to church. the Buddha always went to other people's religious places to to talk with them. I mean, the Buddha didn't go so much to listen, but disciples did. Ananda would sometimes go, and other monks would go to talk with and listen to what they have to say and ask them questions. You know it seems to be very much a thing. there's no sense that they're not our religion, so they are you know bad. It wasn't that. Um, there was no sense of, of difference you know. people had differences of opinion and there was right and there was wrong and that's what it is, right? there's right and there's wrong if Christians say good things we'll go and we'll agree with them uh, so read the Sermon on the Mount and talk to your pastor or your priest or your whoever rabbi about the Sermon on, oh no, rabbi, not Sermon on the Mount but Christian people about Sermon on the Mount if it's a rabbi, talk to them about Solomon he was kind of cool it's a bit weird. I mean, Solomon seemed to believe that uh, not everything is pointless. Everything is pointless. Yada yada yada. Therefore, we should pray to God. I mean, it's a bit of a non sequitur, really. I, I guess I can understand where he's coming from, but I don't know. Well, obviously, I do know. It's a bit. It's a bit uh, forced, I would say. Everything is pointless. Nothing has meaning. Therefore, believe in God. I mean, why would you believe in the guy who made this pointless universe <laughs> the universe is pointless and life is pointless why not you blame the guy and think dude what were you thinking there are three theories on i don't know if you heard this one there are three theories on the evolution of the universe or the the evolution of, of how we got to where we are today the first one is called intelligent design. The other one is called, at least as far as humans go, as far as as, far as uh, biology goes, it's called natural selection. So we're talking about the evolution of mankind. The first one is through intelligent design. We got here through a designer who had great intelligence, enough to create and design and create. Second one, natural selection. So just through um, things that work, sticking around, things that didn't work, dying out, by process of elimination, what's left is, is that which works or one way that things work. And the third one is uh, unintelligent design. And the Buddhists favor this one. We're here because we're not very smart. We designed and created this trap that we've, caught ourselves in. More questions?
1: I think so. Did I even
0: answer the last one? I don't remember what they were asking.
1: The question was, um, what should I do when people ask me to go to church? So, yes, you answered the question. just, Just one funny thing, you know, there's so much on the news in the U.S. about all these different Presidential candidates and mm-hmm. Donald Trump is just constantly on the news. And they're asking him his favorite Bible quote. And apparently, that's the thing they do with all the candidates, to, yeah. you know, so they can all show what good Christians they are. And I thought, what if there's a poor Buddhist candidate there? What's he going to say?
0: What was Donald Trump's favorite?
1: yes they were asking him what his favorite quote was Um, well his answer was that it was too personal he didn't want to discuss it but he had one he thinks the Bible is a very good book but he just didn't want to discuss his favorite quote
0: that sounds like a lie to me
1: yeah he he, your favorite
0: uh, quote is too personal? come on
1: it's too personal he didn't want to discuss it that's
0: the kind of thing you'd say if you'd never read the Bible how many Christians don't read the Bible so to have a favorite quote
1: how should an object of meditation be selected and how long should one stay with that object
0: depends what your goal is the objects of meditation that you choose are um generally samatha meditation so then it's based on your character type there are six different character types you have to have a good sense of which one you are and therefore which one is going to be useful for you Generally, you use a you have a teacher select your meditation object. Now, if you're talking about vipassana, of course, we don't select; we use reality. So then, selection becomes a matter of what's present. And if there are more than one thing, more, if there's more than one thing present, then you would select that which is clearest. Now, you would also you know, it's also recommended that um, you pick a base meditation object, something that you can come back to as a default. And for that, we choose the stomach. It's just a good It's nothing special, it's just always there, so it makes a good base, default object. As far as staying with the object, well, if it's Samatha meditation, you should stay with it for however long it takes to get to the jhanas. Could be months, years even. No, not years, but months. Um, If it's Vipassana meditation, you can stay with it until it disappears you can stay with it until it doesn't disappear and it's clear it's not going to disappear so if it's pain you might stick with it for a while and then just realize it's not going to go away and say enough and go back or you might be listening to something and eventually your mind has had enough and it's no longer uh, drawn to the sound so then you can come back but otherwise you try to stay with it until it disappears
1: Hello, I've watched all of your videos on Ask a Monk. Is there any particular question that you like a lot?
0: No, no more questions. No, I don't don't have such a thought. Probably if I thought about it for a while, I could come up with a good one. I mean, I think my favorite video that I made so far is on the experience of reality. That's the one that I think, okay, this is something that people have to hear. I think it was well done, well received. I've had people come up to me. I think in when I was in British Columbia, someone came up to me and said, I really like that video the video and they just they named that video and I'm like, yeah, I like that video too.
1: It's named the experience of reality.
0: I think. Yeah. It's in it's in practical lessons on practical Buddhism. It's one of the chapters. But yeah, the video is Yeah. It's about um how the three characteristics, how we, we expect our, what we expect our meditation to be, and uh, how that leads us to feel like our meditation, something's wrong with our meditation when in fact, we're seeing what we're supposed to see. and the problem isn't how how the meditation is. the problem is in our our misunderstandings and our expectations that meditation should be stable, pleasant, and controllable. But favorite questions? No. Questions are questions are good for good for students.
1: I have a problem that I cannot sleep after meditation. My mind becomes too active. Any advice? How did you cope with that problem?
0: After, sorry, after meditation can't sleep?
1: Yes, the mind is too active after meditation.
0: Why don't I even see that on here?
1: Um,
0: oh, I didn't scroll down. Oh, there we are.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so someone is too active, someone is too tired. Well, if you're too active, you can lie down. Yeah, but you have you lie down and you don't sleep, well, don't worry about it. Sleep isn't a problem. Just stay awake all night if you have to. Stay awake and meditate, you know, bonus. Bonus time, extra, extra points.
1: That takes the stress off of um, insomnia too. It's so so stressful when you're lying there saying, I need to get to sleep, I Mm -hmm. need to get to sleep. When you just lie there and pay attention to the the abdomen rising and falling, it's so much more relaxing.
0: Yeah, I was an insomniac, for sure. I had it all. I was depressed and insomniac and stressed and all these bad things. So definitely I can relate to that. And you just lie there and you think, oh, it's 2 a.m. And then, oh, it's 3 a.m. I got to get up at 6 a.m. Yeah. Stressful. You, You stress yourself. Sometimes you can't control it. So you just man, it's such a relief to not have to worry about these things, to realize that you're, you don't have to worry about them, to be able to have your mind focused in a different way.
1: Is the robe for a female monk made in the same way as for a male monk?
0: Yes, except female monks have one extra robe, and that's to cover their chest. It's like a wrap. So that's what we were doing. I had, if you look at some of my videos from Sri Lanka, I actually had the female monks doing that. And uh, it was the hugest controversy. It almost got me kicked out of the monastery. And I'm you know, not kicked out, but he would, the, the head monk wasn't going to do their visas, wasn't going to give visas to the female monks because they were bearing their shoulder. And so they wanted them to wear shirts or something. I said, monks. I mean, it just looked so. It was so inspiring to see to see the women bearing their shoulder like the men. I mean, as if it could be seen as in a sexual way. I mean, it was. It's like it was. Oh my God, a woman is bearing her shoulder, which is ah, it's so ridiculous. It was inspiring to see a woman, because I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen a female monk with with a bare shoulder, and so just to see them doing it for that short time, it was. I was inspired. It was, uh, and there was no end, so we argued, and there was terrible arguments. But I said, "You can't convince me, having seen it for myself. You can't convince me that this is wrong, and you can't convince me that it's right for them to wear lay people's clothes, because that's what they want. They want them to wear shirts. But forget about that. Forget about women. You know, the the monks all over the world are are all wearing shirts now. Everybody's wearing. Ajahn Tong never will. He never has, and never will." It's one thing that he's he's always, as far as I can see, he's always rejected. And he talks about when he sees when he sees it. He talks about this. Um, there's this apocryphal Thai sutta that that says that claims to say that the Buddha um, taught. No, you know it's not even the, the sutta, but the commentary Buddha Gosa talks about. I think, or I don't know. It's a bit. There's this idea that after that the last thing to go is going to be the robes. You'll know that Buddhism is gone when the robes disappear. And the last, it might even be in the suttas, I can't remember this is all. Anyway, the idea that in the end there will just be a piece of yellow cloth, no, I think it's not the Buddha, it's um, Buddha Gosai. There'll be just a piece of cloth that they'll put in their ear like an earring to say, I'm a monk. And that will be it and once they stop doing that then that's the end of the robes but it's it, it it's it, we lose it slowly and so we're losing there's a group of very dedicated monks um in i won't mention you know just there's a very serious dedicated group of theravada monks who have somehow come to the conclusion that in cold countries you have to wear a jacket and so they've made a specific monastic jacket which is because they say because it's a uniform therefore it's okay which is such a dangerous precedence to set we're going to suddenly decide on a new piece of clothing that's allowed and it's not it can't be I mean it can be and sure but I mean I'm living in Canada and I was in Winnipeg for a winter and I've never gone with it at one time one time when I was in Los Angeles, Los Angeles of all places. But in winter, it can get kind of cold. And so they kept pushing these sweatshirts on me. And finally, one day sitting in my room, I tried one on. And it, it, just for about five seconds, it just felt horrible. It felt like like uh, made my skin crawl. I pulled it off and threw it away, and that was that, don't touch me. It's not, um, it's not good. So yes, female female monks wear the same types of robes. They just have one extra to cover their chest. It's a wrap.
1: So you wear just the outer robe in a Canadian winter?
0: Not just the outer robe. Have you seen my outer robe? It's lined with wool. See, I have a robe like this that is lined lined with wool. It's not just like this, it's it's also double layered, but it's thinner, double layered. So it's a double layered and then on top of the, I think, no, it, maybe it is just single layered. No, it is single layered, right? Because the second layer is wool, but ah, okay. Not that thick and that's enough. I mean, I couldn't do an Arctic expo- expedition in it, but I survived in Winnipeg and it gets cold in Winnipeg, but I didn't go outside much i was um i was at mcmaster as a monk my first my first reigns i spent in canada and so i spent a semester at mcmaster going to mcmaster every morning going to McMaster university and i did that just with robes of course back then you know i would wear and i will probably wear a wool hat make that concession and they have these wool vest kind of things that only go over one shoulder but they cover your chest i used to wear those i i don't i don't anymore um i don't really feel feel the need my outer robe is thick thick enough thick as anybody's jacket i think worse would be the rain but then you have an umbrella right
1: Do you ever find yourself deepening your knowledge of a subject by teaching it or perhaps reevaluating teachings and their effects on you?
0: For sure. I think teaching is a great way to um, reflect personally, keep you, you know, to see your own hypocrisies, to see, oh, yes, I, I have to do that as well, you know. This is something that I have to work on as well. It's not exactly a hypocrisy, but realizing that you're teaching someone else something and that's something you have to work on. It it reminds you that you have to work on it as well because you can listen to yourself, right?
1: Do you think sleeping on the floor instead of a bed would help my practice or not matter?
0: I think it does, yeah. Keeps you alert, keeps you from getting to... The Buddha even recommended sleeping on... on uh, it's like sleeping on chaff, I think. You know, having like a mattress that's just—I guess uh, you know—the weed hus- or rice husks, I think, which is not very comfortable at all. And then a wooden pillow. I think at one point he recommends a wooden pillow. I tried a wooden pillow once. I don't think I'm that hardcore. I've never seen I'd... a monk put some, but I think it's in there somewhere where the Buddha recommended a wood pillow.
1: I think I'd rather go without a pillow than have a mm. wood pillow.
0: Well, the point is, keep your head a little higher. uh, There's something about that. Yeah, that's hardcore.
1: What was the controversy and opposition that Venerable Ajahn Brahm faced when lobbying for bhikkhuni rights? I don't understand the resistance.
0: I'm not the one to be asking this question, but I do have the answer. I have an an answer for, as an outsider. So let me preface this by saying it's not really uh, my business, but as uh, I, I could say that as um, a precedence or as an example of something that can happen in monastic communities, it's of interest to us. But you know, otherwise it's kind of just gossip because it's in many ways it's not any of my business or any of our business actually. But So let's take it in that light and look at it. Um, because the question might arise that are monks a bunch of bigots? Um, you know, And that was the big thing, that it seemed like the monks were being bigoted. But there's two sides to it. Uh, on the one hand, yes, monks can be quite bigoted, and I think there was some of that involved in this case. Um, again, these people are all still living and practicing, so... If they read this, they might get quite upset by what I'm saying, but I think I would go out on a limb saying that many monks, Western monks as well, are bigoted in this in this regard. I've heard both Western and Asian monks tell me to my face, I mean, not to my face, I'm not a woman, but to tell me, usually in confidence, because they think you know, he would never go on the Internet and tell people, Um that women have problems. Women have special problems that are harder to resolve and make them less, um, less. what do you call, uh, conducive, you know, less... Viable? Not viable, but um, less capable, I guess, as Buddhist monks, capable of, of monasticism. Uh, so I mean to me that's bigotry I don't think that's something the Buddha ever said and I don't think it's something that we should say I think it's a bit ridiculous as well because the majority of people who in Asia who come to practice meditation are women I mean there's other reasons for that men are off working but it's not the only reason men men in Asia can be in some of these societies uh, far and beyond not interested in religion or Buddhism um but in the West, I don't see any difference at all I, if anything, I would still have to say that women make better meditators so the idea that they wouldn't make good monastics I mean, there's some arguments that based on stereotyping, women are you know uh I don't know they're 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 less uh direct in their approach, so they're more because they don't have the strength so there's this argument that men because they've you know for thousands and thousands of years had the physical strength therefore they approach problems directly whereas women are criticized as being potentially conniving so the the point is that they say women women can't get along who said this someone said uh, someone was joking about this and they said women just can't get along they always fight I don't remember i mean it was meant in in jest i think i don't remember what the context was but it was anyway there's so there's this belief i mean i'm not saying i certainly don't subscribe to that but it doesn't seem to carry out in certain instances female monastics do seem to have in practice trouble getting along Uh, i mean that's what they'll tell you that they the, the culture you know because we're all culturally brainwashed and so culture has led them to be less direct in their dealings and so they create different but I even mean, whatever i've you know talk about direct i've seen men i've saw a monk punch another monk in the in the dining room in front of all the monks start pounding on the other monk and gave him a bloody nose so talk about direct you don't think you'd find a woman monk doing that right so better or worse i don't know women have more tactful ways of dealing with things can be quite useful um right so anyway i haven't gotten very far in answering it but i think there is that that part of this problem but the thing in this that that i think wasn't fully appreciated or had to be fully appreciated by the other side is that um what they wanted what they say they wanted was um a chance to consider this question because it would be something new to their group uh, it would be something new to their brand brand of theravada buddhism and so they wanted to have a meeting about it and th- what i'm under- what i understand is that um Brahmavang so said that he would wait until they had a meeting about it and then he didn't then he went ahead and ordained them. And so that was the complaint that I heard, original complaint. Um, but, you know, in some ways it was just a smokescreen for what was really going on, and that was that they wanted to just get the official, get him, get an official word that it wasn't allowed so that he would, he would back down um, or that they would be able to confront him with it. And they weren't going to get that official word until this meeting. So... I mean, he had reasons for why he went ahead and doing did it, but ostensibly he gave his word that he was going to wait, and then he didn't wait, and so it it just created a sense of suspicion and, and so on, and that creates bad blood and hostility when mean, you don't keep your word. I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't, but it, it, the claim was made that he didn't keep his word. So take from that what you will. I mean, obviously it was then this i think Tanisero got involved and started saying how women shouldn't ordain and that just i think you know that shouldn't he shouldn't it, it shouldn't have played a part in the maybe it should have i don't know certainly he's he's certainly has his right to to make his own argument but there was a lot going on with that so what we can take from this i guess is besides the fact that we have to watch our bigotry um, is that um, well first of all we have to watch our promises watch what we promise so if we do it and then we don't follow through it's not lying but it's not very good you know sometimes you can't manage to keep your word and well that happens but it's going to cause friction potentially Um, but also that it's easy for misunderstandings to flare up. I mean, it's a good case study for how these disagreements work and how they can be solved amicably. So in the end, they did have a meeting and they discommunicated him, but uh, they went away friendly. You know, they said, well, you're going to do that, and we've decided that that's not our way, and so you have to no longer be a part of our clique. And and Brahmavangso said, "That's the way you want it. I'll start my own clique, or something like that." But um, but the great thing is, um, great thing about it was that they were able to come to friendly terms in the end. Come come to terms uh, in a friendly way. Oh, wait, you didn't ask about the actual ordination, right? I read that wrong. Are you asking, if you're asking, so that's that's actually when he, because there was the controversy, that was the big controversy that I know about, is he actually ordained. So it wasn't just lobbying for their rights. It involved lobbying. He went to this meeting to lobby for their rights um, and to lobby that their ordination be accepted, which it wasn't in the end. And, um, but I don't know about Brahmavang, so I'm not up on that group, but I know the controversy surrounding the ordination of women. And it boils down to, I'd say it comes to a head on two points. One, whether non-Theravada or bhikkhunis not recognized by the Theravada can be considered to be bhikkhunis uh, for the purposes, can, can convert and be considered bhikkhunis for the purpose of being a preceptor. That's controversial. That's that's difficult. Um, and the other point, alternatively, is whether we can accept the Buddha's words um, that bhikkhus can ordain bhikkhunis as being um, still in effect. And that one far more, far less controversial I mean it's still hugely controversial but in my mind there's no reason for the controversy there and I've written an article on it on my web blog it's probably buried by now I don't think anyone's read it but if you want to read my take on it you can probably search my blog for Bikuni and find it maybe someone can do that now and post us a link um, I argued for like two hours with a top scholar in thailand and we just couldn't make each other see our points of view he was adamant and a bit condescending as well uh, that i would even think that it that the buddha's words on because the buddha said bhikkhus can ordain bhikkhunis which means see the controversy is uh it, it centers around whether you can whether a bhikkhuni can actually come into being in this day and age because in order to ordain a bhikkhu you need another bhikkhu so if there's no more bhikkhus left then no more bhikkhus can ordain it's a technicality once you have no bhikkhunis the question is can you ordain a new bhikkhuni so one way is to say well we do have bhikkhunis they're not called theravada bhikkhunis but they keep the vinaya um, so there's that uh, but that but to me that is too difficult because to get acceptance through that means um, I think you're going to have a real hard time. especially. Yeah, you have a real hard time. But the other way is to have bhikkhus ordain bhikkhunis. Because you have the Buddha's words that bhikkhus can ordain bhikkhunis. And the problem is that later on you have the Buddha saying that bhikkhunis should first... Or ordain new bhikkhunis and then bhikkhus should ordain them again so in order to ordain a bhikkhuni first they had to ordain with the bhikkhunis then with the bhikkhus, which is problematic because we have no longer have bhikkhunis but if you look at it there's two problems there first of all um, first of all the only reason that the Buddha put this um, made this this rule or this statement, that is kind of a should, or it's a do you know do do it this way. It's not because there was anything wrong with the male with the bhikkhu ordination. There was no he had no problem with respected monks ordaining new bhikkhunis. There was no problem there. There was no problem arose. The problem arose. A problem arose. But the problem that arose was the woman wouldn't answer the questions. So there was no problem with the ordination, but it couldn't work because in order to ordain, you have to answer certain pointed questions. Like, um, are you a woman? Do you have these kind of... I mean, some of the questions were personal. And in India at the time, for a man to ask a woman these sorts of questions, um, well, some people were, were shy. And wouldn't answer the questions. So for that reason, and that reason alone, the Buddha called for a dual ordination. You know, go and check her out first, ask her these questions. Once you accept her and say she's a valid candidate and you you've accepted her, bring her back, and then we will take your word on word for it. You know that you've as you've thoroughly examined her and found her to be a suitable candidate. Come and see us, and then we'll just ratify it and say, Yes, she's a suitable candidate. We all agree do our, our announcement, and that's it. Bada bing, bada boom. That's it. I mean, it wasn't, there was no, nothing wrong with the ceremony as it was. That's the first problem. The second problem is that people say, ah, but still, the Buddha told us to do it a different way. Not exactly. If you look at the case with the Samanera, the Samanera ordination, Originally, to ordain as a Samanera, all you had to do... In fact, originally to ordain... Wait, no, we're not talking about a Samanera. Originally to ordain as a Bhikkhu... Sorry, originally to ordain as a Bhikkhu... First it was bhikkhu. the Buddha said, Come, be a monk, and that was it. Then later he said... Um, but only the Buddha could do that. Later he said, Okay, if you guys want to ordain... Um, then do the tisaranagamada. If you're a qualified monk, then you, find, you, someone wants to ordain with you as a male monk, then you have him recite going to refuge three times. Chami Once they had completed that recitation, you know, vowed that these were, this was their refuge, poof, they're a monk. Doesn't mean the old way doesn't work. See, the original way still worked, but it only worked with the Buddha. Ahibiku Ehi, was something only the Buddha ever did. Come, monk. But that, but it was never rescinded. The Buddha never said, "No, we'll stop doing things this way. Do them the new way." Right. So that's one way that things happen. The Buddha just adds another way as a further allowance, right? Because the first allowance wasn't sufficient. But then it was found that the tisar nagamana was actually lacking and was not um enough was improper it wasn't improper at the time but it became improper once you had sketchy monks who were going to be um were going to be preceptors and also sketchy monks who wanted to ordain so you needed greater safeguards this became important so this was the reason in this case that eventually the Buddha said, No longer shall you perform a tisaranagamana upasampada. Anyone who does the tisaranagamana upasampada is guilty of a wrongdoing. He said that specifically. He said it for a reason. It, it wasn't valid, it wasn't enough anymore. There weren't possible there weren't proper safeguards in that method to account for the corruptions that were threatening the Sangha. So then he required ten monks to get together, and also because there were lots of monks, ten monks to get together and ordain as a group. Later on he said, well, later on that became a problem, so it wasn't working, so why? Because in the outland areas they couldn't find ten monks. So he said, well, in the outland areas, find five monks is enough. Doesn't mean that you don't do it with ten monks, but it means you now have two options you have the option to do it with only 5 months but the point is he explicitly repel i repel what's the word? repealed uh, repealed the old method he didn't do that with the bhikkhunis. when he gave them a new method it became a second method didn't mean i mean it 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 seems to imply that and this is the argument in the controversy but from a literalist point of view from a vinaya point of view it's perfectly reasonable it's it's completely open that you have a perfectly valid argument if you say bhikkhus can ordain bhikkhunis because the buddha explicitly said bhikkhus should should ordain bhikkhunis so now in the case where we don't have bhikkhunis luckily we've still got bhikkhus and we can ordain them and so there are monks who do that it's a perfectly reasonable practice it seems that uh it's perfectly valid i haven't done it but i've ordained seminary female novices one of them anyway um so yeah there's that more questions
1: yes Will your online schedule change over the next week with the move to 2 Bond Street South? Say again? Will your online schedule change as you move to the new monastery?
0: Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming I'll stay here until we have internet over there, but there may be a time where we don't have internet over there, so um, during that time it might be canceled. We'll have to see. I have to go to classes on the eighth and the ninth. So probably on the eighth the internet will come. It's scheduled to come in the morning, I think. Uh, but that maybe means that on this no it probably means on the eighth early I'll travel over there and hang out. And then on if the internet comes, then theoretically I'll just be able to keep broadcasting but there may be a day or two where it's interrupted. Other than that, no, the schedule should stay the same.
1: Do you think the human realm could become like a hell? Because it seems to become greedy and more selfish.
0: No, I mean, it could get worse, but hell is pretty bad.
1: Oh, someone found a link from your weblog on the bhikkhunis?
0: No, they found a different one.
1: Oh, okay. 2009?
0: Lots of old thoughts. I, had, I In the beginning I was quite against it because I didn't see that it was... Here it is, I think. Plan B is for Bikuni. No, that's not it either.
1: I would be very interested in your viewpoint on lucid dreaming, or so-called yoga of sleep. Is it positive for the practice? Negative?
0: Oh, the argument- Maybe neither. Sorry, I'm off on a tangent here. Sorry. The argument for allowing bhikkhus to ordain bikunis. Yeah, spent the two, the better part of two hours. Here's the link. And it was someone criticized it as being far too. Uh, obsessed with legal, legalities, technicalities. But um, I mean, that's the point. The people who are against this are the people who stick to technicalities. People who don't stick to the technicalities, you don't have to have this argument with. Of course, I had this argument, and it still didn't work. But I've had I had a Thai woman tell me to my face that I was wrong. That that, that it's not possible for bhikkhus to ordain bhikkhunis. And it was because her teacher who has a PhD said it's, you know. Anyway. The commentary to the Melinda Panha is what changed it for me. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote an article and I wasn't that couldn't that um, I didn't find his article that compelling or what's the word? I wasn't really impressed by his article. It was a bit I don't know. I mean some of it was was good, but it wasn't what I wanted to say. So uh, but that point he made that the point is one of the top scholars in Burma, that what I just told you about the bhikkhunis and, and how it's therefore possible, was it came from one of the top scholars, well, like a Tipitaka Dara, one of the monks who memorized the Tipitaka in Burma, who was hugely respected, he wrote a commentary to the Melinda Panha. And in the commentary to the Melinda Panha, all written in Pali, he uh He says this. He gives this argument. And Bhikkhu Bodhi sent me the argument in Pali, I think. No, he didn't. I I talked to Bhikkhu Bodhi about it. I eventually got someone. Someone actually sent me a copy of it. Uh, Sent it from Japan or America, a professor who had done a copy. And I also got a copy from MCU in Bangkok. Uh, So I was looking at the commentary and seeing what it said. Very interesting. I think Bodhi had it in English. Anyway, back to questions.
1: I would be very interested in your viewpoint on lucid dreaming or so-called yoga of sleep. Is it positive for the practice? Negative? Maybe neither?
0: No, I don't have much to say on it.
1: Is playing violent video games detrimental to one's practice?
0: Because they're violent or because they're video games? I think more because they're video games than because they're violent. I'm not convinced that violence in video games necessarily makes you more violent, except insofar as it has frustration value and addiction value. I think that's more likely. I suppose, I mean, what it does is it gives you the... It walks you through the process of committing violence. But that's perfect, that's completely neutral, you see. It still requires the anger and the desire to hurt, you know, the the quashing of your own compassion for others. Now, that's not required to kill something, um, you know, something digital. So, but for a person who, who, suppose two people give rise to the idea to commit violence, well, the person who's been practicing it online would have a much easier time because they've got the physics of it down. They've got, or not the physics, but they've got the engram. You know, it's ingrained in their mind this, this how to do it or how it would go. So those, those kids who shot up schools and, and, and people who do commit, kids who do commit violence, There's an argument that could be made. It doesn't make you more violent, but it, it makes it easier and more, it provides you encouragement to act out on violent tendencies. I think you could argue for that. But it's not, you know, it's not like you killed someone, that's bad karma, right? I don't, I think that's what you have to say, no, no. No. Because if you've ever killed a living being, you know how much different that is. It's a totally different thing. But, uh, yeah, video games something you have to watch out for. They can be terribly addictive and lead to short attention spans or um, short tempers. Because they have such, they give you immediate rewards, right? Points, free lives, whatever they give you, treasure. So... Anyway, maybe that's. Uh, we'll take one more question and then we'll quit. Do we have a last question.
1: We are all caught up on questions unless one comes in real quick.
0: All right. And then let's quit.
1: Okay. Quit Thank you, Bhante.
0: Thank you, Robin. And thanks, everyone, for listening. 31 viewers on YouTube. It's amazing that we get so many every night. That's nice. Good
1: stuff. Okay, good night. Good night, all.